द मच मलाइंड एंड रेली रेड मनु संहिता द मनु संहिता टेल्स अस दैट दीज वर द सेवेंटीन मोस्ट इंपॉर्टेंट काइंड ऑफ सिविल केसेस विच द किंग शुड ट्राई इन ऑर्डर ऑफ प्रायोरिटी most of our practices almost all of our practices of dharma are actually based on the puranas the funeral rites are from the garura purana the way the temples are constructed they are from the matsya purana yet since purgator in the 19th century and a little bit pusalkar in the early part of the 20th century we have reduced the puranas to amar chitra katha and what we watch on epic tv puranas like the mahabharata they are encyclopedias they are part of a history they are part of a culture they are part of a legacy they are part of sanskriti and sanskriti is intimately linked sanskrit the two come hand in hand okay good evening ladies and gentlemen and let me thank the srijan foundation for having invited me to come and talk to you here and also let me thank all of you for having decided to spend some time on a rainy saturday evening listening to something that normally seems to be somewhat distantly removed so i will take you back from what atanu spoke about to many many years ago and the topic that's been suggested to me says the corpus of itihasa and purana let me begin with the word itihasa which sometimes is inappropriately translated as myth etymologically the word itihasa means itihasa this is indeed what happened so therefore itihasa the word itihasa is not myth if at all it is to be translated into english the word to use is indeed history the word itihasa eventually came to be applied to two particular texts of ours the ramayana and the mahabharata so let me first describe a little bit of the ramayana and the mahabharata to you and when i say ramayana and the mahabharata i mean the sanskrit ramayana and the sanskrit mahabharata 
all of us are familiar with the Ramayana story, all of us are familiar with the Mahabharata story and sometimes when we form our perceptions about the Ramayana incidents or about the Mahabharata incidents, they are not necessarily based on the Sanskrit versions. So far as the Mahabharata is concerned, there is only one Sanskrit text. I will qualify that in a minute. But so far as the Mahabharata is concerned, there is only one Sanskrit text. So far as the Ramayana is concerned, there are three complete Sanskrit texts and two retellings of the Rama story. The two complete Sanskrit texts, of course, are the Valmiki Ramayana, the Dhyatta Ramayana and the Yogavashishta Ramayana. And when I said retelling, I meant the retelling of the Ramayana story in the Mahabharata and the retelling of the Ramayana story or the Rama story in Kalidasa's Raghubamsham. There are other parallel accounts, but I am not talking about those because I wanted to focus on what is normally described to as Hindu texts. Everyone present here knows that the Mahabharata has sections and those sections are known as Parva. And there are 18 Parvas in the Mahabharata. Everyone present here also knows that there are also sections in the Ramayana and the sections in the Ramayana are known as Kanda. Question to ask is, what is the difference between Kanda and Parva? What do these two words mean? Both these words, Kanda and Parva, they actually mean branches, branches of a tree. Except the word Kanda is normally signifies, normally tends to signify a larger branch, a branch that is a little bit more solid, whereas Parva is a weaker branch. It is a flexible branch. It is a more fluid branch. The reason I am saying this is fundamentally the Mahabharata is only one particular story. Unlike the Valmiki Ramayana where if someone was unhappy with what Rishi Valmiki had described, he or she, typically he, simply came along and composed another Ramayana. Unlike that, the Mahabharata is a single unified whole. It is a bit like a whole doll. The whole dolls, the, the older ones amongst us are familiar with it. We used to use whole dolls when we used to travel in trains once upon a time. So the Mahabharata was a bit like a whole doll. Everything got packed into it. However, there were about 1250 different versions of the Sanskrit Mahabharata floating around in India. 
with the same story but minor minor variations nothing major minor variations did veda vyasa dictate to ganesha when draupadi was being disrobed in the sabha and she prayed was it actually krishna or some unknown entity who saved her these kinds of minor differences remember also that when one is talking about sanskrit one tends to presume that sanskrit was a written and b sanskrit was written in devanagari neither of these propositions is true sanskrit fundamentally like most languages is a spoken language it was rendered into writing much later and although it was rendered into writing the script did not necessarily have to be devanagari devanagari is of much later vintage so if a sanskrit script was being written in jammu and kashmir it would be written in sharada if it was written in west bengal it would be written in bengali the script would be like that in maharashtra it would be marathi even though the language was sanskrit so with differing scripts there were about 1250 different versions of the mahabharata floating around in india in pune there is an oriental research institute which is known as the bhandarkar oriental research institute in the year 1916 the bhandarkar oriental research institute started a massive exercise it sat down with all of these 1250 different versions that were floating around of the mahabharata and decided that it would try and determine which was most representative and how did they do this they did this in terms of a technique that is also used quite a lot in the work on genetic studies and something that we are familiar with in school in maths except we have forgotten it and this is called the highest common factor hcf so if a shloka figured in a large number of versions the chances were that perhaps it was in the original because in the process of transmission and distribution down thousands of years it retained it was retained so this is what they did it took them 50 years so this exercise started in 1916 it ended in the year 1966 so it it took 50 years and this is known as the critical edition of the mahabharata in the mahabharata if you remember the story when krishna arrives on the scene krishna is also an ad, is already an adult so a question is legitimately asked what about krishna's childhood exploits those childhood exploits are also described in the puranas i will talk about the puranas in a minute but they are also described in a text 
known as the Harivamsha. The Harivamsha is sometimes described as a Purana. It is strictly speaking not a Purana. It is also often described as an appendix or a sequel to the Mahabharata. So the Bhandarkar Oriental Research Institute completed the critical edition of the Mahabharata between 1916 and 1966 and took another four years to bring out a critical edition of the Harivamsha. So in some sense, the Bhandarkar Oriental Research Institute had set out a template, a methodology for doing such exercises. And there is an Oriental Research Institute in Baroda. And that Baroda Oriental Research Institute did exactly the same thing with the Valmiki Ramayana. There were about 12, about 200 different texts of the Valmiki Ramayana floating around. And the Baroda Oriental Research Institute in the 1970s, exactly as Bhandarkar had done for the Mahabharata, did the same thing for the Valmiki Ramayana. These two are therefore known as the critical editions. Quite often when I meet people, people ask me, why are you translating them? Haven't they been translated so many different times? We have read Rajaji, we have read this, we have read that. And when I am using this term translation, I am talking about translating from Sanskrit to English. I am not talking about translating from Sanskrit to the so-called vernacular or regional languages. Contrary to what you might think, most of the translations that you see floating around are abridged translations. Contrary to what you might think, there are exactly five unabridged translations of the Valmiki Ramayana so far in English. Contrary to what you might think, there are exactly three unabridged translations of the Mahabharata in English. The three unabridged translations of the Mahabharata were done by Kishori Mohan Ganguly and Manmathanath Datta towards the end of the 19th century. And I am the third one to have done the unabridged translation of the Mahabharata. The popular belief is that after composing the Mahabharata, Veda Vyasa composed the Puranas popular belief. But before that, what is the size of the Mahabharata? According to popular belief, the size of the Mahabharata is a hundred thousand shlokas. 
the critical addition has a little bit less because some shlokas have been excised. So, the critical addition has about 80,000 shlokas and to give you some idea of the kind of length we are talking about, my Mahabharata translation which has 10 volumes runs into 2.25 million words. The Valmiki Ramayana is roughly, roughly one third the size of the Mahabharata. All of this is poetry. Prose, Sanskrit texts are of later vintage. All of this was poetry. These days when we hear the word poetry, we tend to think that poetry is rhyming. Isn't it a great pain, outside there is rain. I think this is poetry. <laughs> but rhyming in poetry is of much, in Sanskrit poetry is of much more recent vintage. Rhyming in Sanskrit poetry essentially started with Jayadeva and the Vaishnava poets. Pralaya payodhi jale dhritavanasi vedam vihitava hitram charitram akhedam vedam akhedam. Some of you may have recognized this as the Dashavatar stotram. This kind of rhyming is Jayadev and the Vaishnava poets. Before that, Sanskrit poetry was not about rhyming. It was about a very tight but flexible metrical structure called Chanda, which was based on the notion of Aksharas. And Akshara is a syllable. It is that part of a word with a single vowel sound. And Aksharas were divided into Laghu Aksharas and Guru Aksharas. Laghu Akshara meant that the vowel sound was short. Guru Akshara meant that the vowel sound was long. When we studied Hindi in school, the teacher used to tell us, Choti E, Bari If I've got my pronunciation right, there is no need to say Choti and Bari. So Choti is Laghu, Bari is Guru. So essentially Sanskrit poetry classified meters depending on how many aksharas there were in a line and the distribution of those between Laghu and Guru. And in most cases, a shloka, a verse would have four lines. The word pada has several meanings. Most words in Sanskrit have more than one meaning. But one meaning of the word pada is quarter, one-fourth. We constantly use words without realizing that they are actually based on Sanskrit origins. So a little while ago, had I asked you, what is the time, you would have said, so ache. 
स्वा इज सपाद क्वार्टर प्लस क्वार्टर पास्ट लिटल लेट इफ आई आस्क यू यूल से पोने छे पोने इज अगेन पादो न क्वार्टर टू सो पाद इज अ क्वार्टर सो मोस्ट श्लोकर्स इन संस्कृत यूज टू हैव फोर लाइन्स फोर पादर्स एंड आई हैव टू रिपीट वॉट आई सेड डिपेंडिंग on the number of aksharas in every pada and the distribution of those according to lagu and guru you had different meters and there were about 1300 different meters floating around the most common of which was something is something called anushthup we meet anushthup every day well not every day every week without even realizing it is anushthup what is the description of anushthup eight aksharas per line i am not going to confuse you but and give you the div- the division into lagu and guru because that will serve to confuse you just the number of aksharas per line per pada eight first line of the bhagavad gita it's the first line of the bhagavad gita धर्म क्षेत्रे कुरुक्षेत्रे समेतायुत्सव सरस्वती महाभागे विद्यकमलोलोचने कैन यू थिंक ऑफ समथिंग अबाउट गणेश वक्रतुंड महाकाय सूर्यकोटि समप्रभ ऑल एट एट ऑल क्लासिक अनुष्ठुप एक्चुअली इट वॉज टफ बिकॉज अनुष्ठुप ऑल्सो रिक्वायर्ड इन एडिशन टू बीइंग एट दिस पर्टिकुलर अक्षर वुड हैव टू बी लघु इन दैट लाइन दैट पर्टिकुलर अक्षर वुड हैव टू बी गुरु but i'm not going to confuse you with that and the first poet the first kavi kavi is not really poet the primary meaning of the word kavi is wise person the first kavi was also of course valmiki and we all know the story with his disciple bharadwaj valmiki went down to the river tamasa to have a bath when he suddenly saw a hunter come along and shoot one of these two birds croncher birds curlew birds with an arrow and as a result of this the first verse the first shloka emanated from valmiki's mouth and this was also anushtup manishada pratishtvang tvamagama shashvati sama यथ क्रौंच मिथुनाथ एकम वधि काम मोहितम ओ हंटर सिंस यू हैव किल्ड वन ऑफ दीज टू बर्ड्स हु इन द थ्रोज ऑफ पैशन यू विल बी डूम्ड टू इल फेम फॉर इटर्निटी द वाल्मीकि रामायण टेल्स अस बिकॉज दिस एमिनेटेड फ्रॉम एन एक्ट ऑफ सौरो और शोका this kind of composition 
came to be known as shloka. Valmiki was a poet, Veda Vyas was also a poet. But the contrast between the two poets is remarkable. And you should not read translations, you should read the Sanskrit originals to get a flavor of that. One of the messages I am going to leave with you, I hope to leave with you, is please do not have discussions on the basis of abridged translations. Please try and read unabridged translations. In English, in vernacular, it doesn't really matter. And even the translations will not convey all of it. So therefore, after that, try and read the Sanskrit. But to come back to what I was saying, the nature of these two poets was completely different. Valmiki would wax eloquent at descriptions of nature. Rains, he would describe the rains. He described the trees. Veda Vyasa was very matter of fact. He never wasted time describing nature. So and so came along, spoke to so and so. So and so shot so and so. So and so cursed so and so. Rarely will you find nature described in My first, one of the first triggers which attracted to me, which attracted me towards Sanskrit was actually two poets, Kalidasa and Valmiki. And I will recite two shlokas, rest assured I will translate them. In those days, of course, there was no WhatsApp and the reason I am focusing on WhatsApp is the first thing in the morning, I get WhatsApp messages, see, read my article, watch my interview, see my picture. In those days, people were less driven by notions of I. Particularly because these are texts of dharma, aham, and mama were less important. The word I in Sanskrit and no Indian language that I know of is ever spelt with a capital. And I also think it has something to do with the nature of the language. Sanskrit is a language where The verb is most important. So the verb determines the meaning of a word. So if as a Sanskrit scholar I know the verbal root, I will be able to make a reasonable guess as to what the word means. You have not understood what I have meant, so let me illustrate. A tree. So many different words for a tree. One of the words for a tree is Padapah. Padapah. What is Padapah? The verb root is Pina. And Pada is feet. So Padapah is something that drinks with its feet. So whenever I hear the word Padapah, it's not just a tree that comes to me. 
It is the image of something that is drinking with its feet. That's a chair. One of the words for a chair in Sanskrit will be asandaha. And what is asandaha? It is something that gives a posture. I find the word ajagara and I ask you what does the word ajagara mean and most of you will say quite rightly it means python or boa constrictor. It does. But aja is a goat. And gar is to swallow the root. So anything that swallows a goat is an ajagara. It can be a python, it can be a boa constrictor, it can even be a crocodile. And if one of you is a man enough, a woman enough to swallow a goat, you would also be a jagara. That is the reason it is somewhat difficult to categorically say that this is the meaning of a Sanskrit word. Because the verb is important. I happen to think that our attitudes are to a large extent determined by the language. And if I am intrinsically, if my evolution has been based on Sanskrit or on a language that is derived from Sanskrit, then I naturally becomes less important. Because as I said, the proper name, the pronoun is less important, the verb is important. So, if you meet most Indians, even if they are conversing in English, they will rarely say, normally, I am Vivek. The natural inclination is to say, my name is Vivek Devroy. Or I am known by the name Vivek Devroy. But I have digressed. I was going to tell you about these two shlokas. I digressed because Valmiki and Kalidasa were both famous poets, but we know absolutely nothing about them. Kalidas did not say I was so and so. Valmiki did not say I was so and so. We are not even able to date them satisfactorily. In the Valmiki Ramayana, in Sundarkanda, there is a section when Rama already knows that Sita is in Lanka. And Rama is waiting to invade Lanka. He can't. Why? Because it's raining. He has to wait for the rains to be over before he can actually invade. And Balmiki, remember I said he described nature. So Balmiki says, don't worry, I shall translate. Not that a translation is necessary for this one. Vidyuta pataka savalaka mala shailendra kota kritisannikasha garjanti megha samudir nanada matta gajendra ivasanyugastha. Vidyut pataka tinged with flags of lightning. Savalaka mala, garlanded with cranes flying around them. What is like that? The clouds. And what are the clouds doing? The clouds are roaring, they are thundering. And what is the image? What is the simile for the clouds? It is elephants. And what are these elephants doing? Matta gajendra 
ഇവസംയുഗസ്ഥ ജൈഗാൻറ്റിക് ക്രേസി എലിഫൻസ് വിച്ച് ആർ ഫൈറ്റ് കാളിദാസ് റോട്ട് മെനി കാവ്യസ് വൺ ഓഫ് ദ മസ് നോട്ട് എ ലോങ് കാവ്യ ഇറ്റ്സ് കോൾഡ് മേഘ്ദൂത്തം there is no story in meghdutam there is a yaksha who has been banished by his lord and master kuvair he has been banished from alakapuri which is kuvair's capital and he has to go and spend one year in exile in ramgiri he is pining for his wife whom he has left behind in alakapuri he sees the cloud and he sends the cloud as a messenger So in the first part of Meghdutam, the cloud goes as a messenger. In the second part of Meghdutam, the cloud returns. So all Meghdutam is, is, is about a description of nature. Right towards the beginning. Well, actually we are in that month now. Right towards the beginning it says, Asharasya Prathama Devase Megham Ashlishta Sanum Vapra Kreera Parinata Gaja Prekshaniyam Dadarsha. yaksha first day in the month of ashar the mountain is covered by clouds and the metaphor for kalidas for the clouds is also elephants but what are the elephants doing the elephants are playing vapra kreera is when elephants play and use their tusk to dig up the earth and it sort of hit me here is here are two poets describing clouds two poets combine compare them with elephants rama who is dying to fight the elephants are fighting yaksha pining for his beloved the elephants are playing when i do an unabridged translation when i do an abridged translation i normally tend to focus on the more interesting parts and what are the more interesting parts so and so killed so and so so and so shot so and so so and so gambled but these texts are treasure houses of knowledge they are beautiful beautiful poetry and i have already hinted at that beautiful poetry particularly valmiki but also vyasadeva those of you who read or will read the bhagavad gita 11 chapter beautiful poetry forget everything else fantastic poetry beautiful poetry second a tremendous amount of information on geography tremendous amount of geography information i don't know about this audience but audiences elsewhere are surprised when i tell them Did you know that Varamulla is actually Varahamula because that's where in Varaha avatar form Vishnu raised up the earth. Everyone here knows about 
Vishnu's ten avatars. <coughs> Excuse me. First avatar was Matsya. And we all know the story. He went to bathe, etc., etc. What's the name of the river? Where he first went to bathe. There's a river, right? Where he went and then he discovered this small fish which he picked up, put in a pot. What's the name of the river? The name of the river is Kritamala. And what is Kritamala? Kritamala is a river which is a tributary of the Vaiga. And today it has been reduced to the state of a Nala near the Madurai railway station. And people don't even remember that this was Kritamala or this is Kritamala. So littered with geographical information. Littered with information about what we would call governance. Governance not just about Raja Dharma, but also about Dharma for us. If I ask any economist, mention to me a text on governance and political economy from thousands of years ago, they will say Kautilya Arthashastra. Remember? that 95% of our texts have still not been translated. The National Manuscript Mission estimates, estimates, they still have not finished counting. The National Manuscript Mission estimates there are 40 million texts in India of a certain kind. As long as it is a manuscript, as long as it is a puti, there is much more that is in the nature of oral knowledge that is being lost. How many books have been published in any language in the world since the beginning of Gutenberg? The UN has a figure, it's 130 million. 130 million all languages in the world since the beginning of printing. And here we have 40 million. The entire Greek civilization corpus that we talk about has a maximum of 10,000 or 20,000 works. And here we are talking about 40 million of which 95% have not been translated. I have a 13th century text which someone passed on to me. I don't think I'll ever have the time to translate it. If I were to translate it, it would become a book of about 300 pages and it is called Chorya Shastram. As you will have deduced from the name of Chorya Shastram, it is a manual for thieves. So in general, we have absolutely no idea of the amount of text that exist and on governance, it is not just Kautilya and remember Kautilya's Arthashastra had vanished from our memory until Shama Shastri discovered it in 1905 and translated it. There are so many texts on Arthashastra, some of which have been lost. There are so many things about governance in the Mahabharata itself. When? Bhishma is lying down on his bed of arrows and is teaching Yudhishthira and the others. 
इन शांति पर व इन अनुशासन पर एब्सोल्यूटली कॉन्वर्सेशन बट वेन भरत कम्स टू मीट राम एंड राम आस भरत अबाउट द किंगडम वेरी सिमिलर टू वॉट नारद आस युधिष्ठिर एंड वेरी सिमिलर टू वॉट वन ऑफ यू इफ यू डेड टू आस्क वुड आस द प्राइम मिनिस्टर टूडे very similar questions the questions are perennial the much maligned and rarely read manu sanghita the manu sanghita tells us that these were the 17 most important kinds of civil cases which the king should try in order of priority and guess what was number 1 breach of contract In the Mahabharata Bhishma tells Yudhishthira, if it is a rich person, that rich person should not be imprisoned. Rich person guilty of a crime should not be imprisoned because it is at the cost of the public exchequer. Only the poor person should be imprisoned. the rich person is one on whom you should impose a monetary penalty whether you agree with it or not is beside the point but there is a clear rationale behind this and had i not told you that this is from the mahabharata atanu is of course gone away at the moment otherwise you would have said oh atanu discovered this because it was in a paper written by the chicago law and economics people many years ago I read a commentary by a Western Indologist on the Dharma Shastras, and in the Dharma Shastras, as you are aware, probably aware, it stipulates the rate of interest should be this much for Brahmanas, a little bit more for Kshatriyas. a little bit more for vaishyas and higher still for shudras and many western indologists and following them many indian indologists have castigated us saying what is this how can the rate of interest be linked to the varna system so i read up the dharma shastra texts and i discovered the dharma shastra texts also say the following What is a Brahmana going to borrow sums of money for? For small sums of money for sacrifices. What is a Shatriya going to borrow money for? Larger sums of money for waging wars. The outcome is uncertain. What is a Vaishya going to borrow money for? Larger sums of money for taking ships and going off on voyages. The outcome is very uncertain. Stated in this way, had I said. that the rate of interest reflects a risk premium everyone would have been very happy but this is precisely what it is so tremendous amount of information not only about kings but about what we should do and for us in our structure of things the dharma structure i am not talking about dharma in a metaphysical and moksha dharma sense the dharma structure was 
this is what the king would do limited duties for a king dispute resolution defense external security internal security protection of property rights punishing the wicked protecting the virtuous that's it a large part of which the rest was done by the community who implemented unfair trade practices and restrictive business practices there was no competition commission of india the the shrenis did it who did skill development the shrenis did it who implemented mrp the shrenis did it and there was the individual hinduism is invariably equated by a lot of uninformed people with the upanishads oh hinduism is not about making money it's not about artha it is about moksha dharma it is retiring to the forest it is those speculations which are important nonetheless but the upanishads the brahmanas and the aranyaks were composed by who they by people who retired to the forest the vast majority of the population then as now they were householders they were grihasthas they did what we do today earn money hopefully by legitimate means and follow five dharma that we have to follow every day which is satisfying the gods satisfying the ancestors feeding other human beings feeding animals and birds and eating after that this is a perennial template of good citizenship the word atithi in english we will translate it as guest well maybe if you invite me to your house for dinner i am not an atithi i am an announced guest atithi is atithi someone who turns up unannounced in the course of my other work i travel throughout india and in in rural parts of india even now if i turn turn up Roughly around meal time, the householder will say, "Khana kha ke jaiye." Metro India is dying out, but that's part of our culture. That's part of the atithi. The atithi is to be given a gift. When my wife and I we are invited to someone's house for dinner, we keep thinking, "What shall we take as a gift?" They say, "Western." I am not supposed to take the gift. when i come as a guest the host is supposed to give me a gift so a tremendous amount of information on geography a tremendous amount of information on dharma in this particular sense and of course a tremendous amount of information on moksha dharma because there are also dharma texts in that sense and also information on history on dating it is not true that there are no records there are records including astronomical records 
I am running out of time, so I have not, I should, it's high time I mention the Puranas now. The Puranas are ancient texts, the word Purana means ancient. Veda Vyasa is believed to have composed the Mahavarata, I told you, 100,000 shlokas. After composing the Mahabharata in 100,000 shlokas, he composed 18 Mahapuranas. There are plenty of lists that float around of Puranas, but when I am using the word Puranas, I mean Mahapuranas, the major Puranas and there are 18 of these. Together, these 18 Mahapuranas amount to 400,000 shlokas. So, in translation terms, 10 to 12 million words. At least for the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, there were some translations. For the Puranas or some of the Puranas, there have been no translations in English ever. I am not talking about the major ones like the Bhagavad Purana which obviously it's a most perhaps the most popular puran it's been translated a lot but some of the other puranas amongst the 18 mahapuranas have never been translated and the way we interpret dharma moving away a little bit from vedanta and the upanishads most of our practices almost all of our practices of dharma are actually based on the puranas the funeral rites are from the Garura Purana. The way the temples are constructed, they are from the Matsa Purana. Yet, since Parjitar in the 19th century and a little bit Pusalkar in the early part of the 20th century, we have reduced the Puranas to Amar Chitra Katha and what we watch on epic tv but i hopefully have dis have portrayed to you that the puranas like the mahabharata they are encyclopedias they are part of a history they are part of a culture they are part of a legacy they are part of sanskriti and sanskriti is intimately linked to sanskrita the two come hand in hand now so far as i am concerned Having done the Mahabharata, the Harivangsha and the Valmiki Ramayana, I have now started to translate the Puranas. The Bhagavad Purana has been published. The Markande Purana will be published this year. The two longest Puranas are the Padma Purana and the Skanda Purana. Sir, I uh, want to ask you, uh, was Dharma established after the Mahabharata war? Was what? Dharma established after the Mahabharata war. Is a shloka from the Bhagavad Gita which says, Yada yadahi dharmasya glani rivavati bharata abhyutthanang adharmasya tadatmanang sayama. Dharma goes into periodical cycles of more dharma, less dharma. That does not mean that dharma was suddenly discovered as a result of the Mahabharata war. But there are periods in time when 
dharma goes into decline and there are periods of time when dharma tends to prosper. So there are cycles. One of the things we should do is recognize that our notion of time is essentially cyclical. Our notion of time is not linear. So there are cycles. So exactly similarly, dharma always exists, but the practice of dharma goes through ups and downs. One of the aspects of the Mahabharata often criticized by today's commentators, especially of the leftist uh, hue, is the polyandrous relationship of Draupadi with the five brothers. Is it is it uh, a literal meaning, the polyandrous relationship, or is it something that people have missed? I personally have only read. I don't. I don't. Cannot read Sanskrit or Hindi for exa- for the matter. So, what exactly is the relationship, and is there any explanation offered in any of those? Uh, uh, text that you spoke about or the critical version that you have translated? I repeat what I said earlier that my plea to everyone is that if you are going to discuss it, if you are, if you are going to criticize it, if you are going to support it, please read the text. Do not argue in the absence of information, which is normally not a good way of arguing. I have not directly mentioned the composition of the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata clearly and the Valmiki Ramayana, they were composed over a period of time. I will go off on a tangent because this reminds me of something else that is important, which I probably should say. Normally, people will tell you the Valmiki Ramayana was composed before the Mahabharata. Why? Because there is a reference to the Ramayana story in the Mahabharata, but there is no reference to any of the incidents of the Mahabharata in the Valmiki Ramayana. Standard argument. Suppose I now tell you. Suppose I now quote this expression. Where do you think this is from? Come on. The Bhagavad Gita. So therefore it is from the Mahabharata. And no doubt you will be surprised to learn that this is a regular story, that the regular expression that figures throughout the Valmiki Ramayana. The Valmiki Ramayana is the story of Surya Vamsha and the Mahabharata is the story of Chandra Vamsha. Yayati is from where? Surya or Chandra? Chandra. So what are all these references to Yayati in the Valmiki Ramayana? In other words, in my view, in the final form of the Valmiki Ramayana, whoever composed it knew perfectly well the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita, even if he was not directly referring to it. But to come back to this. So the Mahabharata was composed over a period of, let's say, thousand years. People kept adding. The Mahabharata itself tells us that. Over a period of one thousand years, social norms change. In the Mahabharata, we are told, there was a sage 
and this sage's name was Shvetaketu. Shvetaketu's father was Uddalak. And Shvetaketu at this time was still a boy, he had not grown up. Suddenly a strange man comes to their house, looks at Shvetaketu's mother and says, come let's go. And Shvetaketu's mother goes away with him to have pleasure. Shetakitu goes to his father Uddalak and says, what is this? My mother has gone off with this strange man and you are not doing anything. So Uddalak says, why should I do anything? This is the way it is. She has gone away to amuse herself. When, when her amusement is over, she will come back. Big deal. Shetakitu says, this is not on. We must have a system of marriage defined by chastity and faithfulness. So, Mahavarata tells us that Shetaketu instituted this system. If you read the Valmiki Ramayana in Sanskrit, preferably Valmiki Ramayana is not very easy, difficult to read. By the way, women and men in that day and age, both of them wore two garments. An upper garment and a lower garment. That's it. When Draupadi was disrobed, and we are used to, ever since Raja Ravi Verma, I guess, we see Draupadi dressed in a sari, and that sari goes on and on. Come on. They did not wear saris. So, when Sita is being abducted by Ravana, according to the Valmiki Ramayana, she throws down her ornaments and she throws down her upper garment. And see how difficult it has been for translators in English and in the vernacular languages to translate that she has thrown down her upper garment. In the disrobing incident, before Draupadi's upper garment is taken away, the five Pandavas, the male Pandavas are deprived of their upper garments. Why? Because, I said, male, female had an upper garment and a lower garment. But, if you were a slave, if you had no independent existence, you are not entitled to your upper garment. So, their upper garment was taken away and Draupadi's was taken away after that. In a roundabout way, my response to your question is, this society was a very liberal society. Obviously, if it was composed over 1000 years, then some parts, I can cite some parts to say that women were oppressed. I can cite some parts to say that women were treated very well. But that aside, it was a very liberal society. And if we have problems of the kind you are mentioning, that is a problem with us. It is not a problem with the texts. So, polyandry existed in certain parts. If polygamy can exist, if polygamy existed till 1856, then I don't see why, what is wrong with polyandry. The problem, as I said, is with us. 
because we are trying to apply our norms on 2000 years ago and that is simply not right. Hello. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, my question is, you said that it would be best if we could read these texts in Sanskrit. So how, because most of us don't know Sanskrit that well. So how should we go about it? Like we should learn Sanskrit and then read these texts or we should learn Sanskrit through these texts. So if you could just uh, elaborate on this. No, no, I don't think it's either or. Anyone who knows any of the Indian languages should have no problem in learning Sanskrit. The problem is caused by the fact that Sanskrit has Sandhi and Samasa. And sometimes we look at this word and we say, I can't just figure out what this means because it has got Sandhi and Samasa. Let me give you my favorite example to a different question and then I'll answer your question. Sometimes I'm asked how many words are there in Sanskrit. The Oxford, complete Oxford dictionary I think has 170,000 words. Most those amongst us who are very proficient in English will probably have a vocabulary of 15,000 words or 20,000 words. Shakespeare had one of 30,000 words. Maybe Shashi Tharoor has 35,000 words. <laughs> Sanskrit, though because of Sandhi Samasa, I, there is no limit to the number of words. Let me give you an example from the Meghdutam which I mentioned. Yaksha is describing to the cloud Alkapuri. And if you remember, Alkapuri is the capital of Kuvera. I'm reciting all of the shloka, but let's not bother about translating the first part. Gantya vyate vasatiralaka nama yakkesharana vahyo dana sthita harashira shanrika dhotya harimya. This is one single word. Vahyo dana sthita harashira shanrika dhotya harimya. What is this saying? Outside there is a garden. Vahyo dana sthita in that garden, there is a statue of Shiva. Shiva's statue has a moon on the forehead and the beams from the moon are washing the mansions of Alkapuri with them. Single word. The trouble with Sanskrit is, if you do not know Sandhi and Samasa, you look at this word. And you say, oh my God, what does it mean? Now, if someone broke it up and said, Bahya Udhyana Sita Sthita Hara Shira Chandrika Dhotya Harmya, I am certain everyone here will get some sense of what it is. So, it is breaking up the Sandhi and the Samasa, the Pada Cheda that causes problems. So my response to your question is not either or. If you try to read Kalidasa, impossible. But if you try to read Valmiki Ramayan, where Valmiki was a poetical structure wise, it was very simple. So if you try to read Valmiki Ramayana, I am certain you will be able to understand it without a great deal of difficulty. 
If you read the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita with the Padacheda, get hold of any text which has the Padacheda, you will be able to understand it. So, I think these are actually very good ways to learn Sanskrit. So, my question is that, uh, is, could, you, could you kindly tell us a little about the Okal Bodhun story uh, of a story or, you know, the itihas of Okal Bodhun because very recently another economist has said that there's apparently no relationship between Durga and Ram. So, does the Okal Bodhun uh, signify anything or what does it say about this to this extent? You see, the question is about Durga. There are variations of the Valmiki Ramayana in Sanskrit floating around in various places. The critical edition and there are references in some variants of this story that before he was going to fight Ravana, Ram prayed to Durga. This particular section is not there in the critical edition of the Valmiki Ramayana I mentioned. However, it does figure. There are also popular renderings of the Ramayana story, not necessarily in Sanskrit. So, you should ask that particular economist because you are likely to meet him much more than I am and the question was asked by a Bengali by the way. <laughs> Whether he has read something called the Krittivashi Ramayana which certainly his grandfather had read. You should ask him whether he has read something called Meghnath Bodh Kavya, which is a Bengali take on the Ramayana story by a poet known as Michael Madhusudan Dotto. Because in both of those, there is a reference to this Rama praying to Durga. Both Krittivashi Ramayana as well as the Durga Puja, which is celebrated in the eastern parts of India, it has its antecedents in one particular Purana, which is known as the Markandeya Purana. There are, there are about 700 shlokas in the Markandeya Purana, which in North India is read by the name of Chandi. And in the eastern parts is, in, in North India is read by the name of Durga Shaptashati and in the eastern parts is read by the name of Chandi. The entire liturgy of Durga Puja is based, liturgy meaning the mantras, is based on the Markandeya Purana. Mahishashur Mardini was actually a very ferocious goddess. And most Bengalis will no doubt protest at my statement, but Mahishashur Mardini is not a goddess from Bengal. 
Mahishasuna Mardini is a goddess who comes from the Vindhya mountains, around the Vindhya mountains and she was a very ferocious goddess. There was a, there was a learned Sanskrit Pandit, Bengali, but Bengal was evolving then, the language was also evolving. His name was Raghunandan Bhattacharya. And if you ever meet that particular economist, you should explain to him what the word Raghunandan means. <laughs> Raghunandan Bhattacharya decided that if I am going to popularize the spread of Durga worship amongst Bengalis, this ferocious goddess will not do. I will have to make her civilized, homely, etc. etc. So, Raghunandan Bhattacharya wrote a text in Sanskrit called Durga Puja Tatta or Durga Tatta, which has now vanished but derived works exist. So, it is Raghunandan Bhattacharya who gave Durga Lakshmi Sharashati as daughters. Ganesh and Kartik were there, but he put them on the same thing and he had this particular image with Shiva beaming down. He started this story of she visiting her parents, etc., etc. So, the mantras came from Markandeya Puran and the homeliness of Durga was courtesy Raghunandan Bhattacharya and the Mangal Kavyas, another Mangal, etc., etc. The Markandeya Puran refers to Akal Bodhan. Not Ram, but worshipping Durga at the wrong time because Durga used to be worshipped in around Vasanta. So, Akal Bodhan, not as Ram, but by a king, a Vaishya, and a Shudra, happens in the Markandeya Puran to accomplish their objectives. Okay, I think that is that. Okay, thank you.